that we're talking about a lot of different theories that are trying to explain an event and um, all of them fall short in one way or another. And so I think it's kind of natural for people to to push back against some of these because it's so hard to, to your kaleidoscope point to get the whole picture of what's happening in the cross of Christ. And um, yeah, and so it's a place that we struggle and are open to question. And that doesn't mean if we question the atonement that we're questioning the gospel. Welcome to the Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. Every preacher knows when they're teetering on the edge of a topic that will result in receiving a phone call on Monday morning. Instead of backing away, this podcast exists to work through these polarizing ideas and spark conversation. This season, we're learning what it means to pull apart Christian beliefs and examine your faith in a process called deconstruction. We'll cover the most questioned topics within Christianity in hopes that it will help all of us better understand what we believe. All right. Well, welcome Larry and Alyssa to another episode of Monday Morning Phone Call. Today, we are jumping in to talk about deconstruction of atonement theories, which uh, just up front, we should let everyone know it might be a little bit of a different episode. It's going to be a lot of (laughs) theology, um, maybe some terms people aren't familiar with. We're going to do our best to kind of uh, define some of those things to help people uh, along uh, the path as we kind of like look at this um, theories of atonement that a lot of people uh, lately have been kind of deconstructing, working through, trying to figure out uh, what they believe and think. And so um, as we kind of talk about uh, atonement theory, we're jumping into it. Anything you guys would say right off the bat to, to maybe kind of put some caveats or, or parameters around the conversation or things that you think is important for the, the listener to know as we jump in? Yeah, so I would say that at least for me, I don't like lay awake at night and think about atonement. Um, maybe, I know, right? I'm busy thinking about laundry and all those other. That's at least what I spend the my time. The Theo Bros are very upset right now. Oh, no. Well, they'll they'll be, fine. they'll be fine. Give them some coffee. They'll be fine. Um, but I think so. We don't. It's not something we talk about on a daily basis, but I think we see it in. Yeah. Um, I I think I've really seen it in the way that I've talked to my kids about the gospel, that I think that when you kind of parse down, um, well, like Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he saved you, that all of a sudden that's when the theories kind of come out and Mm -hmm. um, all those things that you didn't know you believed about the Bible um, come out. So I would say that even if someone's not familiar with atonement or hasn't wrestled through it, you're definitely familiar with the concepts um, and probably um, have adhered to one of the theories that we're going to talk about, Mm -hmm. um, even if you didn't know that you believed that. And what I was, first of all, hi, Alyssa. Hi, It's great to be here. Um, What what I would say is, uh, you know, I'm really excited, actually, for this (laughs) talk. He's a Theo bro, yeah. Yeah, This is just like fun. And uh, yet, I I think the three of us were really intentional here that we want to keep it focused on this idea of of faith that's deconstructing. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, taking faith and strengthening it. Um, but what we're saying in this is that this is a really hard subject. Yeah, this yeah, is the cro- Paul says in First Corinthians that the cross is uh, uh, offensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's parts of it that are a stumbling block, yeah. and this so it's understandable why people struggle with this part of our faith. Yeah, it's really absolutely. when you think of the, kind of the horrific things that happened to Jesus yeah. on the cross, and that's kind of what we're centered on: is what was he doing on the cross? Yes, 
um, it's a hard discussion. Yeah, too. absolutely. And so we want to keep that more pastoral yep. slant uh, yeah. as we talk as well, not just fun theology. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's a, a great definition, too, as we talk about atonement today. Really, the, the, the heart of the definition of that is, is what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? What happened on the cross? This uh, thing that Christians have said for 2,000 years is the most momentous event in history. Um these theories are trying to explain that radical thing uh, that happened. And I think um, to that point you just made too, Larry, a lot of people I think are deconstructing atonement because, um, especially if you, we kind of talked about this in the episode on purity culture, but if you grew up in the, the 90s, yeah. um, there was a with purity culture and other ways that gospel was presented, it was often presented with a, a shame-based narrative yeah. about who you were as a person. Um, there was a lot of guilt. And a lot of that came from some of these uh, theories of atonement that we're looking at. And so when, when people begin deconstructing, often it comes from a place of woundedness. Of I feel like I was kind of manipulated into believing uh, this thing about what Jesus had to die for me, or that I was such an evil, terrible, awful person that it required someone to die. And that... Um, the way that that's been used, I think while the message can be found in Scripture, I think the way that it is often used or manipulated or people leaned into emotive behaviors to try to get students to react at youth camp or wherever it might be, <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot of wounding that's there. That's often what it was, manipulation. Yeah, yeah. yep. Um, we're going to make you feel so guilty and so bad about yourself that, that you'll receive Jesus. And that's actually not the heart of the gospel. Um, and so, yeah, so as we kind of jump into this, uh, we'll be talking about different theories and um, I think for me, the first place that I really began to see deconstruction of atonement or what Jesus accomplished on the cross was I had an intern a few years ago uh, that I asked that a... Uh, um one evening for us to conclude service after the message with the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Um, just sent her the song list, and then she responded back, sorry, can't play that one. Um, that was all that she gave. I was like, oh, wow, uh, like you don't know it or what, what's going on here? Um, and uh, it was actually because of the line, the father turned his face away yeah. um, in this song. And it comes from... Psalm 22, uh, where Jesus says, quotes Psalm 22 on the cross. This is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this kind of famous line uh, really led people to, to kind of center some theology around um, God and Jesus being separated on the cross. Um, particularly around a theory of atonement we'll call penal substitutionary atonement, um, which without going into too much detail right away, it's it's that the father um, basically had to kill Jesus, the son, in order to take the punishment. People in, in, And she was kind of rejecting that idea, didn't want to sing that, didn't want to dive into that. Um, and that was really my first interaction. I actually, I don't know if you remember this later, but I went into your office and I was like, hey, Someone just said they can't sing this song because this didn't happen. That's kind of that happened. Like that's part of the the gospel, and and so it was just it was the first time that I'd really heard someone begin to um, start to kind of pull apart the threads of what happened at the atonement, and that in some ways kind of led me to my own questions and doubts and deconstruction about some of that. Yeah, similarly, Paul, I've had a couple experiences as well. One time, I remember preaching on Genesis twenty-two, mm-hmm. where uh, Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, and I had a person come up to me after that service and said, "If that's the kind of God." that you believe in. I'm not sure I want that guy. Yeah. Uh, and obviously a really tough passage to take you to yeah. unpack that passage and Absolutely. understand it. But um, 
Then, then the other, I had, uh, we had, we did a Good Friday service several years ago, and we actually used Psalm 22 as a part mm. of it, and and even talked a little bit about what was happening in that moment. I mean, I I wouldn't actually say that the Father and the Son were at odds at that moment. Right. That, again, we're getting the way yeah, no, jump into that now, but um, this family actually left uh, our church. After mm. our good, that Good Friday service, wow. said they just couldn't take a God who, where the Father would turn His back on His yeah. Son. Yeah. yeah, it's tough. It is, yeah, yeah. and it's um, a lot of the conversation around it. The the term I often hear in deconstruction, particularly this, there we'll we'll spend a lot of time on uh, penal substitutionary theory because that's where a lot of deconstruction is happening first and foremost. Um, but people often um, you'll hear people say that well, it sounds an awful lot like divine child abuse. Yes. That, that God is abusing Jesus and torturing Jesus and murdering Jesus uh, so that his wrath can be uh, satiated. And and so, Alyssa, I don't know if you have any experiences or like we kind of on this pastoral side, have you kind of heard or thought through or felt that tension at all? Or what does that look like for you? Yeah. So I think in trying to figure out um, how to explain the gospel to my kids, that's definitely, like I mentioned, like that's definitely when it comes out that it's like, like I don't. Do you um, want to tell your two-year-old that they're terrible, awful, Yeah, that you're bad person? and yeah, yeah, yeah. that, How like, you, yeah. <laughs> exactly, that you had to, like, someone had to die for you because you're well, so terrible. I would encourage you to use the word propitiation. <laughs> um, turns out my son Lane would smart. actually use that, <laughs> and I'd have to figure out what it meant, um, you know. Uh, but in terms of, like, a life example yeah. that I remember, I worked at um, Idrahaji, um a decade or so ago. Oh. <laughs> I know, a while ago. Um, and actually during training week, um, another counselor left because they didn't agree with the way that um, kind of Idrahaji's stance mm. on all you have to do is like say this prayer and then you'll be saved because, mm. you know, because Jesus died for you and is this like substitute and that's yeah. all you need to do. Um, and actually when a kid you know, kind of praise the prayer at Idrahaji, they go and they write their name in like a book of life. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, that's it. And so I wouldn't say it was necessarily fully like PSA, yeah. uh, but um, I think that there's definitely the underlying current. Um, but I do, I think I've been wrestling a lot with, because it almost feels like, at least in my life, that PSA and the gospel are so tied yeah. that from this theory, you're making claims or assumptions about the nature of God to like a lot of your points of the people that talk to you, Larry, that all of a sudden it's like, well, if you've, if this is what you're assuming or kind of from this theory, well, then obviously like God is wrathful and bad and, or not bad, but, um, unkind and unjust. And, and then all of a sudden you can't, um, follow a God who's like that. But it's like, wait, like that's not scriptural. Like that's not what's actually true. But because of this metaphor we've used to explain what happened, then you've made this assumption about, and like it just gets. The implications of the metaphor. Exactly, exactly. So I think it might be helpful as we we kind of get going to to maybe just give kind of a definition of of penal substitutionary yeah. atonement, and we throughout the podcast we might abbreviate that to PSA because it's a lot easier to say than penal substitutionary atonement yeah. theory every single time. When I'm nerve, I mean penal. I'm I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. I'm nervous yeah. to say. Well, we so, don't know what's going to come out. So yeah. just up front, I think that's helpful. Is penal is punishment, not 
something else. (laughs) (laughs) And substitutionary is that basically Jesus substituted himself in our place um, and took the punishment uh, that we were deserving of uh, so that we might be saved. Uh, In Western culture, I think this is the predominant way that the gospel is presented. I think Mm -hmm. I'm really... I think when you look at the Billy Graham Crusades, this is the way that he most often presented the gospel. Um, that 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 um, we are so evil and and depraved and in need of of grace and mercy that Jesus had to die um, in our place so that we didn't get punished by God and receive uh, His wrath. Anything you would add to that definition, Larry, or kind of help flesh out? Or? Just just the definition of atonement itself, oh, yeah. I think, is important yeah. too. Which and it, it actually in the Hebrew in the First Testament it, it talks it's the idea of covering sin and so blood you know the, the life is in the blood bloodshed uh, paying a penalty would cover the, our sins um, and so it's this idea of what is God doing with our sins yeah. how is he um, how does he solve the problem how does he solve the sin? problem that our sin has created yeah, yeah. Yep. so that's the idea of atonement yeah and um, this particular atonement theory PSA uh, really kind of came into prominence with the reformers Calvin yep. and Luther um, and they uh, but interestingly, both of them were, were studying to be lawyers uh, before they became kind of theologians and pastors and reformers. Uh, and so they kind of used their context as lawyers to, to put this metaphor on the cross and on atonement to try to explain this radical event that, that happened in, in human history. And so they, they kind of put a legal or forensic lens to the atonement. So if you uh, have ever heard the, the kind of metaphor of God is the judge and we stand before him uh, to be condemned for our sin. Jesus comes in place. In fact, there was a really awful uh, music video. Does anybody remember the, the um, I was going to say the musical man, uh, <laughs> the, the artist Carmen. Uh, oh, yeah. He was like oh, a yeah. Christian artist back oh, in the like no. 80s, 90s. Yeah. He had a whole music video where it was kind of like, Rapping, talk. Anyways, we don't need to go into it. You can look it up if you really want to see bad um, 90s uh, Christian culture. But it was basically this whole idea. God was on the throne. Um, someone was about to be condemned. And Jesus stepped in as the devil was accusing them. And When and he was even second, like a judge, right? That it was like a, almost yeah. like a court yeah. case, yeah, a, yeah, right? Yeah, a courtroom. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. And so that's kind of the, the metaphor um, lens that they, they, this kind of like forensic, there's, there's guilt that needs to be uh, punished. And so Jesus takes the punishment. Punishment and the wrath of God uh, for us. Um, and then the, the other thing that happens in that substitution is then not only does Jesus sacrifice himself and substitute himself for us to take the punishment, but then he substitutes um, and imputes his righteousness on us or transfers his righteousness mm-hmm. to us so that we don't carry guilt anymore. We're, we're clothed. When God looks at us, we're, we're clothed in the righteousness yeah. of Jesus. So yep. he sees the righteousness of his son. And so he doesn't hold any of our sins and the penalty of our sins against Against us. us, Right. And you can even hear, even as you explain, as we explain the metaphor, there's other metaphors that come into play, right? Like the clothing and stuff. So there's, all of these are are ways that theologians have been trying to explain what is actually happening when Jesus uh, died. Um, And so what we'd like to do today is is talk a little bit about um, PSA and maybe deconstruct that a little bit and kind of acknowledge some of the problems and, and frustrations or woundings that people have from that. 
talk about a few of the other atonement theories that, that kind of maybe help balance out the picture that people have used to try to describe what happens on the cross, um, and then maybe kind of point to a way forward that, that the church can take. Um, and if you're in a place where you're deconstructing mm-hmm. and, and feeling uncomfortable with this, our, our hope is that maybe the conversation could provide some healing around ways that you've, you've experienced wounding. Uh, but then also um, maybe give some hope, too, about the good news of, of yes. what uh, Scripture says about what happens. Because I, I think that's maybe the place to start with PSA is for a lot of people, that does not sound like good news. The idea yeah. that I was so evil, I was so bad, such a terrible human being that someone had to, to actually physically die so that I could be okay. Um, that doesn't sound like good news always. No. You're right. And I think one of the prominent voices, well, I'm not sure I would say today he's a prominent voice like he was perhaps 10 years ago as a writer, pastor named Rob Bell, yeah. who uh, in his book, Love Wins, um, you know, that got a lot of press in the evangelical world because of its universalism leanings. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what's also uh, in his book there is he what he ta- calls toxic forms of substitutionary atonement. Yeah. And for him, what that meant is that we've <coughs> focused so much on this idea of you know our sin and our unworthiness uh, that it's become neurotic. This mm-hmm. neurotic guilt, um, and uh, he, he talks about the psychological penance that most evangelical Christians have lived with yeah. in their walk with God. Absolutely. Because yeah. it's... So it, I, and that way, you know, this is being recorded. I understand this. But that's... I, I would agree with Rob yeah. Bell. I think we've emphasized just part of PSA. By the way, as a 60-year-old man, PSA, that that's a whole nother... means a whole nother thing for me. Yeah. On there. What does that mean? <laughs> that's the test you take for prostate cancer. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> as a young woman, I was Sorry. not aware of that. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of of but um, uh, so I, I'll, I'll use the word VA, the vicarious <laughs> atonement. Yeah. yeah, and you may want to define that for us as well. As yeah, it, it's similar but a little nuanced. Vicarious comes from the word oh, we we hear the word in vicar. A vicar is another word for a priest. Uh, it's one who stands in the place of mm-hmm. someone, um, and so the idea of vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement. Yeah. I'm just joking there. No, yeah, fine. <laughs> no but uh, yeah. uh, I, I think Bell's point is that sometimes we focus so much on the guilt side of yeah. PSA that it, it, it truly becomes a guilt-inducing, um, you know, dragging our sins around kind of Christianity. And to, to build off of that, it, it really at the heart of it is an idea that... that it goes a little further than Jesus' sacrifice satisfied um, some some need for... for um, reconciliation and redemption but that god is a god who actually needs to punish um and so it 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 takes it a a step further where it's not just that god uh, wants to redeem or reconcile so sent his son to to make all that happen but that god is a god that has to punish bad things for happening punitively Mm -hmm. um and so it, it, I think a lot of tension people feel is that it, it doesn't feel super restorative. It feels mm-hmm. like that there has to be some sort of uh, torture that, that even in, I've heard pastors say before that Jesus um, was mocked and flogged and, and beaten and bruised because those are all the things that God needed to do to us mm-hmm. um, to, to satisfy his need for justice. That's a very kind of different view of God than the one I think we see in Scripture, but it mm-hmm. can be so overemphasized that then, yeah, you feel like this um, <laughs> kind of masochistic exactly. way about yourself. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like it's like, did are we being saved from God or by God? Right. That Did Jesus save us from 
God. Um, and when I think it puts so much focus on justice that it's almost like, well, God can't, um, God has to listen to this justice, right? That's so all of a sudden this justice or this concept is even bigger than who God is, that there's someone controlling yeah. him. Yeah, the, I think that's a great question and way of phrasing it, is are we saved from God or by God? And the way I've heard it um, kind of talked about is that, that if you have a, a medical lens on this um, and God looks at us and he sees that we have this cancer of sin in our lives, that that's, it's permeated everything, it's polluted everything, and he's got to figure out how to take that. A doctor looking at that will take very drastic action to remove the cancer to make sure someone's healthy and whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not doing that. The doctor's not doing that because he hates you. He's not making you go through chemotherapy. Yeah. And Larry, you know, I mean, you've been yep. through it. It's not that the doctor yeah. hates you, but so it's the... PSA was too high. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he hates the cancer and wants to right. do everything he can to remove the cancer. Exactly. Um, that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just caught it. <laughs> but... Um, so that there's a different lens, whereas I think sometimes what PSA does is it, it makes people think in the metaphor lends itself to this belief that, that actually God hates you because you have cancer. Yes. And that's not yeah. a way that God views yeah. people. Yeah. He views sin as the problem, not yeah. people. We're created in his image. Yeah. It says over and over in scripture that God loves us, even um, that he wants those who, who reject him, his hope and desire would be that they would, would be reconciled that's to him. so well said, Paul. And that's where I would agree with Rob Bell's yeah. uh, kind of um, diagnosis that it's toxic. At that point, it becomes toxic. Yeah. And it becomes very, very defeating. Yeah, uh, brand of Christianity. Yeah. Which is why I think the, the step towards living in that kind of toxic uh, Christianity is legalism. You know, right. we'll fix it with putting laws down. Yes. And then you can at least do these things and you won't feel like such a bad person. Yeah. yeah. Maybe God won't hate me then. Yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing, so that's kind of one lens is that it, it, it kind of, PSA kind of leads to this place where kind of masochistic, sadistic, like we're so bad that punishment and God hates us. The other place that it ironically leads to, and that I don't understand how both of these are held so much in tension, but it often leads to a sentimentalized faith yeah. where Jesus died for me and he loved me so much, which again is true. I'm not trying to mock that, but I, I've heard it said things that like, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks you in the eyes and he says, this was worth it. And if no one else ever believed um, in the gospel, if just one person did, then it would be worth it. Uh, which such is, is the, the problem with that is it's such a small, minute um, focus of what happens on the cross. It's so much bigger and broader than that. And while God does love us individually, um, it, we kind of turn it into the sentimental Jesus. Look at how much Jesus loved me. And so we sing songs about how much Jesus loved me. Um, which is true to an extent, but when we overemphasize that in too much, then it just kind of becomes Jesus is my best friend who who gave himself for me. And there's no implications beyond that of just now I'm saved and I have a ticket into heaven because God loved me so much. And that's problematic in and of itself too. I mean, it's almost the phrase like God like loves the sinner, hates the sin, right? Yeah, that there's yeah. this, you know, he wants to separate those things, but it's, that's... Um, what God did is so much more than that, that right. it's about he came to, you know, save us, but also our relationships with other people in the world that yeah. like turns out the fall permeated everything. everything. Yeah. And so Jesus didn't just die to save you. It was this entire world that he created. Um, and so if we, you know, put it down to just this tiny thing, 
we actually miss so much of what what God actually planned to do. And at the risk of jumping ahead, because yeah, I no, think we're going to pick some of this up later, how that your your theory of atonement that you lean to is often what shapes yeah. your your discipleship, the yeah. way you live out the Jesus life. Mm-hmm. And so if that's your view of the atonement as what it was, is that essentially that I'm the center of God's world, right. then yes. your, your faith expression is going to be fairly small because I don't think you'd necessarily be interested in the poor yeah. or yeah. the immigrant or, you know, any, any other uh, ramifications of the gospel beyond right. well, it's Jesus is going to get me to heaven. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's kind of the, the way that the gospel has been explained so often. And it's the way I heard it um, and received, but you just need to invite Jesus into your heart because yeah. he loved you so much. And yep. that line, interestingly, is actually not found in scripture. There is a, a, a sense of, of God's love. Absolutely. Um, but really the, the metaphor is that we're tying ourselves to God and his story and allegiance. Mm-hmm. They're not, you can come in my heart so I can get into heaven, which I think is the maybe maybe the kind of final critique I would name about uh, penal substitutionary atonement is that it kind of turns everything into a contract. Mm-hmm. And so it's this idea that um, you're so bad, you want to get to heaven, but you can't because you uh, have sinned. And so God comes, sends Jesus, he dies in your place uh, so that you can then get to heaven and, and basically it's a um a transaction that that happens and you get a ticket to go be with god forever uh but then it leaves out so much and kind of neglects like well why did jesus i know Alyssa, you've asked this question but then why did jesus live like why didn't he just die as a baby or why why do we have his whole life and why do we need a resurrection and it, it leaves out a, a lot to be desired and what does it mean for us now what what do we how do we live now um in this and so it, it's led to a lot of people who can accept jesus as savior but not as lord mm-hmm. um because they're they're so moved by what he's done for us and so um the, those are just a few of the the issues that i think people have brought up and that, that we would kind of validate about this mm-hmm. metaphor mm-hmm. Of, of atonement and i think you had one more paul that's kind of personal to you uh, which i th- think is a really good oh yeah question about. yeah so w- I, I think when you look at all of these that one that this kind of it's centered on wrath, this idea of divine child abuse and this um, retributive justice rather than restorative justice. When you look at it, the sentimentalization of the gospel, and then when you look at the kind of neglect of uh, who God is and, and his the implications of the gospel for life now and, and moving away from a transactional, I, I think we have to ask the question is, has this presentation of the gospel that's kind of dominated Western culture for, for at least the last 70 years, probably in the last 400, um, is what kind of Christians has this story or metaphor produced? And I think <laughs> my, my challenge is that um, particularly now in our current context, and I'm, I'm speaking very specifically about American uh, cultural Christianity, is that I don't know that this view of atonement is working for us. And I, I don't mean that this view of atonement isn't sufficient for our sin and salvation, uh, but it, it's not working in that it's not producing the kind of Christians that uh, Christ calls us to be. And and so the, the way I've kind of thought about this is if you just, if this is the predominant gospel narrative and metaphor we use, has it made us uh, as Christians a more loving people or a more forgiving people? Uh, are we more just because of believing this narrative? Are we more peaceful? Um, what scripture reiterates over and over and over again is that if the gospel takes root in people's lives, then it will produce people who look different. And I think one of the challenges the the church and 
honestly, a lot of the reason why people are deconstructing is because they look at the church and they say, those people aren't that different. Mm -hmm. They believe in a lot of things that um, the world believes in, or they use a lot of means to power or things Mm -hmm. that, that... um, you know, I was reading the other day that Christians are twice as likely as non-Christians to believe um, in uh, the death penalty. And I can't help but wonder if this kind of view of God having to die for wrongdoing has led us to a place where the punishment for people doing wrong is death, mm. which I think counteracts the message of the gospel in so many ways. And so there's just a lot of implications that I think we have to to wrestle with. If this is the dominant gospel narrative, I'm not always sure that the evidence suggests we're becoming the kind of community that God has called us to be. Mm-hmm. When I think so often, um, and I don't remember the exact verses, so Larry, if you remember, um, but I mean, it talks specifically about like the fruit of a tree. Like if yeah. the like if that branch isn't good or if like it's not bearing fruit, got to cut it off and that doesn't mean that like the tree is not good but it just means that the fruit isn't isn't good isn't healthy um and we need to like be aware of that and and not hold so tightly to that one that one piece when the gospel is so much bigger yeah the other and i think you both raised really good points there and yet i i do think the challenge is that as you look at the New Testament, still this, the PSA or VA, whatever we're going to call it, this idea of, of the atone, biblical substitutionary atonement in, in all its nuances is still the primary dominant metaphor yeah, in the New present. Testament. Uh, and it, these words sacrifice, propitiation, propitiation is a word from the Greek halasmos. It literally means the place on the altar where the blood was placed that satisfies justice mm-hmm. and removes wrath. Payment is so those kind of words remain the dominant metaphor for atonement in scripture. Uh, When God wanted to demonstrate his love for us, God substituted himself on the cross for us. And uh, so, just one, I think, two verses from Romans 3 we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Some translators are would use the word atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So to me, it's an an issue of application, understanding and, and applying the, what the scripture teaches as yeah. substitutionary atonement. Absolutely. And I would maybe even expand that. Yep. It's a, um, the issue is implications and yes. application. Yes. And so, and, well and both of those come together, but there's natural, if we, to, to what we said earlier, if you overemphasize uh, the wrath and, mm-hmm. and God's hatred of people, then, then that actually, the implications of that are far reaching and kind of just talk about a lot of the things that we already brought up, but yep. um, it, I think it is so important to say that there are throughout Scripture, and I would even, you know, to your point, it's in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament too. It's, it's sure. building a, an argument about uh, what the, yeah, is happening there. Well, and I think that we just, our cultural context, shocker, is so different than the Bible. <laughs> oh, um, and so I was hoping that the two of you could maybe chat through a little bit, because obviously there's sacrifices in the Old Testament, that that is what... God asked of his people yeah. um, to do. and But at the same time, if you look... Which feels at, really weird to us now. Of like, yeah. you got to kill a 
go to be okay? Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because if you look at the other cultures around them, they were doing the same things. Right. And so in a way, the Israelites didn't look different yeah. than everyone else. But I do think there was a reason that was different. So maybe, um, Paul, could you maybe talk wow. through what was the cultural meaning of sacrifices in the Old Testament so that we can kind of learn from yeah, that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really important uh, point, Alyssa, because I do think we can look at, you know, say like ancient Babylonians or Egyptians who did sacrifices, and then we look at Israel and we say, well, what's the difference? Yeah. And I think uh, scripture and the, the Jewish argument for atonement and for sacrifice looks very different than the cultural uh, context, even of its day. So uh, if you go to, to um, you know, ancient Egypt, and they have all these t- different temples for all of these different gods and they're, they're killing all these different animals sometimes people in order to appease the god and make the god uh, send blessing to them if they don't do this then god will curse them and uh you know not send rain not send the 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 food or sunshine that they need and so everything is always life under god trying to make sure he's happy with us um the Jewish narrative is a very different story about sacrifice. It's not a story about trying to appease God to make us happy uh, with us. It's a story of, of sacrifice to make God safe for us, is maybe mm-hmm. how I would distinct mm-hmm. and make a distinction. And, and so the, the Jewish Bible always makes this distinction that um, sacrifice is also God's initiative breaking in towards us, not us trying to get to God, but, but God saying, I want to be with you. I am so holy, so perfect, so powerful that um, because of sin and, and the brokenness in the world, those two things are incompatible. They don't mix. It's oil and water. And so I want to make a way for me to be intimately connected and known among my people. And so when you see all of these things like the tabernacle or the temple and all the weird things that we read about, about the dimensions or the, the different spaces of, of how to get to God, um, all of the sacrifices are in a way of, of trying to make that space safe for us so that we can be known. And I, the, the most helpful illustration I've heard for this is, is that if you want to go into a nuclear reactor, you have to, to do the proper preparations to, to be able to enter this awesome, powerful space. And so you don't just walk in with whatever you're wearing on a Sunday morning. You go in and you put on a hazmat suit and you make sure that, that everything in the, the space is, is controlled and the temperature is right. And, and that is often what the image we have of the Old Testament sacrificial system is that um, it's essentially putting a hazmat suit on people to encounter the, the most holy and perfect um, and transcendent um, creator of the universe who wants to break into our world. And so um, so sacrifice was not about just making God happy with us, but God wanting to be with us. And that's a very different narrative or story. So then you apply that to the New Testament. Yeah. And sorry, I know I'm kind of going here, but if you apply that to the New Testament, to Christ's sacrifice for us, it is not Jesus dying to appease uh, God so that he blesses us and makes us have a better life, but it's so that, that we can once again be with God. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons why when Christ dies, the the Holy of Holies, the curtain is torn. Yeah. And it's it's saying that, hey, this space that has been reserved and that you could never enter because of what Christ has done, now there's no separation or barrier, which is a beautiful image, but we miss that when we just think God hated us so much that he had to, to kill and punish someone. Anything you Paul, add to that? Well, Larry? Paul, that was so you 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 preach. That was so good. That was so good. He does that on occasion. He does yeah. that on occasion. You should be preaching. Um, 
Yeah, and, and Alyssa, what a what a, a weighted question. I mean, there's so much to, to to study on that, especially the whole system. But some have argued, interestingly, that it goes even beyond before the tabernacle, before Israel was established as a nation, to even in the garden when mm. uh, Adam and Eve fell and yeah. sinned, that they covered themselves, their shame and guilt, with fig leaves. But God provided. Yeah. Um, animal skins mm-hmm. and the, the blood was shed. Yeah. Um, and so, but exactly to your point, Paul, of it's God making provision so mm-hmm. that we can be with him. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the story I think of, of even the animal sacrifices. Yeah. Well, that definitely doesn't sound like a wrathful God, right? Like <laughs> no. that part, that's not, yeah, not the same no. thing. Yeah. It's not, not centered on, on hatred or punishment yeah. or wrath. And, and yeah, what I would say is that Scripture tells us is that God does have wrath for sin, yeah. the injustice yeah. and brokenness and harm that happens to people. Um, God uh, detests those things and, and wants something to be different about that. But again, it goes back to that metaphor of, of the doctor. Um, God hates the, the cancer and, and the sickness and the pollutant that's in us, mm-hmm. not the people. And so something has to still be done about... Um, you know, the awful things that happen in the world. I think we were getting in trouble is when we start attributing that, that to individual people and, and mm-hmm. have what God has to do there. And, and I would add too, it just, it's still all of that said, and God, you know, wants to be with us and, and, um, it's still through his blood, through yeah. bloodshed. I remember, um, Kathleen Norris in her great book, Amazing Grace, talking about a conversation she had with a friend who was in the Unitarian Universalist Mm -hmm. church. And uh, they were having the discussion that in Kathleen Norris's church, uh, I think it was Lutheran church, but they have, they have blood, you know, in the, in the pews when they take communion Uh, in the Unitarian Universalist church, they have teddy bears in the pew. I mean, Uh, that's the difference. I mean, that Christianity is still a religion of blood and uh, that's, Hard. And, and yeah, I was going to say, that's where the tension and the, the offense comes it's in. Is it, it still feels kind of foreign and weird. And um, the Bible Project, they uh, are, are we allowed to reference another podcast on our podcast? <laughs> or is that competition? Yeah, they're pretty good, too. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're really good. But they, um, in some of their study of the Old Testament sacrificial system, they talk about how, for whatever reason, and, and we don't always have a good grasp on why, so I won't, won't try to answer that question, but... The way that that seems like things were set up is that in order for us to be safely with God and, and this pollutant of sin over the world had to be cleaned and dealt with is that for whatever reason, the antidote or the, the solution to that is blood. And so um, they talk about how, you know, if you think about this is maybe a bad metaphor, but if you think about a window that's dirty, you have to spray Windex on it, and that's what cleans it. That's kind of the the way that they talk about um, blood and sin is that for whatever reason, blood is the the thing that cleans, and the scripture talks about this, cleanses and purifies and and redeems and and cleans the sin, um, pollutant of sin in our our lives and our world. Um, So I think having said all that, um, one thing we'd like to do is maybe talk about a couple of the different theories of atonement and maybe um, as I, I'll kind of do a brief summary of each and then yep. we can kind of 
uh, quote unquote deconstruct some of them. <laughs> look at look at what they're saying. Uh, and I think as we just as we start into this conversation, it's important to say that all of these theories have been used for for sometimes thousands of years, sometimes hundreds of years, to explain this incredible event uh, that happens at at the cross. And all of them, uh, it was people trying to explain in their context, in their time frame, and their uh, locale what it means that that. Christ died uh, so that we could be saved and the world could be redeemed. And so the first one that I thought would be helpful to talk about is called moral influence theory or moral exemplar theory. Uh, it was one that is mostly attributed to Augustine um, back in the day. I no don't know. Slouch. Yeah, no <laughs> slouch. Pretty big, big deal. Um, but basically this, this theory of atonement is that uh, as Christ died on the cross, uh, he served as the catalyst for social change and societal reform. That his example of sacrificial love um, and innocence becomes the the moral influence or, or example for how we're supposed to live our lives. Um, if that feels kind of foreign to you, if you've ever heard a preacher or speaker or podcaster or whoever talk about the ways that um, Jesus calls us to follow him and live like him and love like him, that's really going back to this theory of atonement in uh, the moral influence theory. And as you we talk through each of these, we'll try to, to kind of maybe name phrases because we're not familiar with the terms, but we're very familiar with the language around some of them, I'd say, for the most part. So as we kind of lay out moral influence theory, any initial kind of reactions to that or, or thoughts about moral exemplar? Yeah, so I think... Um compared to PSA, it obviously accounts way more for God's love, that like that is the primary characteristic that Mm -hmm. we're talking about, and also way more accounts for Jesus living, right? That it's like we're really going to consider that um, and actually not really consider the cross and and what happened there as much. So almost opposite in those two ways. Yeah, absolutely. It it really places the emphasis on Christ's life um, rather than his death and resurrection, which is important in Scripture. I mean, you know, in, in a lot of the Gospels, the passion takes up a, a good chunk, but there's a ton of teaching on how Christ lived his life and how we're supposed to follow suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the problem most people have with this, and Mary, maybe Larry, you could speak to this, is that it just doesn't go far enough. Right. Yeah, I, I think the difficulty is that it still does not speak of um, dying, Christ dying for sin, bearing right. our sin, um, dying to satisfy God's justice. And so in that way, it really robs kind of any uh, atonement theory of, of its ultimate power yeah. to forgive yeah. our sins yeah. and doesn't go deep enough into what Jesus was actually yeah. doing on the cross. And this is a really yeah. popular one, especially for, for some who have deconstructed or because it it just kind of erases all the blood yep. metaphors and we don't have yep. to deal with that. It's just Jesus was a good person and we can be like yep. him yep. Um, and, and follow suit take up our cross too and um which is all good and true and, and we the bible supports this biblically and and um, ethically but it just doesn't it leaves out a lot to be desired um which leads us to a, a second theory of atonement called ransom theory um and that every time i hear this theory i just think of the mel gibson movie ransom has oh. anybody ever seen that no okay this hasn't you know it's like I his have. son gets stolen right. and he like tries to figure seen out taken to... but not oh, ransom. okay yeah it's basically the original taken but <laughs> Was not helpful as for many like throat chopping i feel like liam neeson oh, does a lot, yeah, a lot of, of like, throat karate chopping, chopping. Yeah. yeah there's probably some of that i think he was like an accountant or something that tried to get his son back anyways <laughs> this is not helpful uh ransom theory is that jesus died as a ransom uh most often this one is attributed jesus died as a ransom sacrifice 
to appease Satan, um, that Satan, because of the fall, um, Adam and Eve, when they fell, they sold humanity to the devil in the fall. And in order for God to get us back, he had to send Jesus uh, to die in our place. Um, and then once Jesus, uh, or sorry, once the devil accepted Jesus' atonement, then we could be freed from Satan. Mm-hmm. A challenge with this one is, is kind of twofold. Um, one is that it kind of makes God out to be a trickster, that he like tricks Satan, was like, ha ha, gotcha, you thought you had me, but you didn't. Um, and the second is that it gives Satan power over God, which uh, Scripture does not do. Um, and, and Satan is very much subservient uh, to the will of God. Um, if you kind of are thinking this theory maybe sounds familiar, it's probably from the Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan cuts a deal with uh, the White Witch and sacrifices himself so that um, that uh, Edmund can go free. And so it's kind of in popular culture and uh, kind of a dualistic way of thinking that a lot of people resonate with, but Larry, thoughts? Yeah, I, I, to me, this is probably the most, like, more bizarre one or maybe distant from yeah. Scripture. And yet, um, several years ago, uh, I was at a Third Day concert. Some of you older folks in the listening audience <laughs> will remember a group called Third Day. We were, we were on the Cape Cod, and actually my son Luke and one of his friends were the, got invited to be roadies oh, on the wow. cruise. So really, really fun night. <laughs> but I'll never forget, in the middle of the concert, they stopped, and this guy came on and wanted to just give a quick presentation of the gospel. Mm. And he set up this framework of how like we're all like birds or parakeets in a, <laughs> in a cage that was put there by the devil. And what Jesus came to do was to open the cage door. And I looked at Jan and I said, what in the world is he, is he saying? And it was ransom theory. It was ransom theory. Yeah. Which is a really weird metaphor to yeah. take it to a parakeets, and that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, this idea that we're somehow enslaved or captured by but, Satan, captured and by Jesus Satan. has yeah. to, to buy us back. Um, it's yeah. mostly attributed to origin in the third century and kind of the, the way that in Roman culture you could buy back slaves. Um, so there's, and, and the Bible does talk about God buying us back from, from slavery so that we can be heirs. Uh, the trick is that I don't think he's buying us back from Satan from, yeah. um, necessarily. So, Alyssa, any reaction or thoughts or thoughts on Chronicles of Narnia? Or? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I just keep thinking, like, is Satan the cat, you know? And, like, are we, like, the, the Tweety? Yeah, the Tweety <laughs> birds. Like, um, no, but I think it's really interesting just how each of these theories, it feels like it's so, again, cultural, right? Yeah. That it's, like, for people who were slaves, this totally makes sense. Right. And, oh, like... That means that Jesus wants to buy me back mm-hmm. and how um, to them that could be really freeing and yeah, liberating absolutely. that they, they're they worth it um, yeah. to to God yeah. um, compared to they probably don't necessarily feel that way. Yeah. yeah. And you can see in a lot of these too, there's a, there's going to be some blending of metaphor. Yeah, totally. and it's kind of hard to separate out, especially with the next one, uh, which is uh, satisfaction theory of atonement. And this was basically um, a little bit later in the game, but it uh, was kind of attributed to Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, but it's basically ransom theory, but instead of, of Christ dying for Satan to be satisfied, Christ dies for the justice of God and, and restitution, mending the broken uh, sin um, and and injustice that's happened in the world that that must be balanced. Um, if you've ever heard a pastor say something like "someone always pays for injustice" or um, that you were the the debt you owed God was paid back in Jesus, that's some of the language that kind of captures uh, this. Important thing about this theory is that it was one of the first atonement theories to suggest that God is acted upon by the atonement that mm-hmm. that God somehow. Um, the atonement is something that happens 
uh, to God and against God for the salvation of people and uh, the reconciliation of all things. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's kind of a when I've heard this one um, that kind of came about in like feudal times. And so it's a lot about even God's honor and shame, that that's what's really important. And we can see this um, in the example of when Moses um, is on Mount Sinai and the people are being crazy and God's like, oh, I'm just going to wipe them out. Like yeah. they're the worst. And Moses says something along the lines of like, what will people, what will they think? Right. Like, well, and that is what changes God's mind, maybe, yeah. or that's at least our understanding, right? Yeah. And so it's it becomes about God's honor in that yeah, in that moment. Absolutely, yeah. yeah and we'll it, it was a very common cultural, um, yeah, way of using this this feudal system and how um, the honor of the king. If something happens to them, then there had to be a payment to to bring restitution there. And and so, um, yeah, a lot about uh, buying back and and saving that way. Larry, any mm-hmm. thoughts on? Satisfaction? No, other than to say, um, uh, and it's a masterpiece. I, in a seminary class, we had to actually read the masterpiece is called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Man. Mm. And uh, just, he was arguably one of the greatest writers in church history, mm. the way he could spin a phrase. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. That's yeah. all I want to say about it. No, that's that. great. <laughs> I love it. Just some yeah. good reading. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And then the last one, um, and this one, it was it's probably the oldest um, and one of the most dominant throughout church history. Definitely uh, also present in scripture, um, like many of the others. Uh, but it's actually kind of making a comeback now yeah, and, and kind of rising in prominence, uh, thanks to several different theologians. Uh, but basically, the, the last one is Christus Victor. And uh, it is the idea in summary that Jesus died to conquer and defeat the powers of evil, sin, death, and the devil, uh, to free mankind to their bondage to sin. Um, in Christus Victor, it's not necessarily that God had to be appeased or that, um, that Jesus died in payment for something, but that Jesus' death and resurrection itself um, and because of his innocence and his humanity and divinity, uh, that it was the power that broke the spell over of sin and death and, and the devil that, that had a grip on the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so similar to ransom or satisfaction theory, but it's not a payment plan. God didn't pay anyone off, not even himself in this theory. Um, and it uh, came along uh, fairly, fairly... Um, I'm sorry, it was one of the original ones, but it's kind of making a comeback now with this idea of how God became king and defeated evil, death, and the devil to establish kingdom, peace, justice, and renewal. Uh, It has a lot of roots in the ancient uh, Roman Empire and this kind of idea of when an emperor would come and conquer and defeat, um, he would establish his peace and justice and renewal. And so even in scripture, when you see um, that Jesus is king of kings or lord of lords, or when you see the narratives and the passion of how Jesus is raised up on a cross and enthroned there, has a crown of thorns, um, or clothed in a purple robe. All of these metaphors are being used to kind of point to Jesus becoming king through death um, rather than, than conquering through through the sword. And it results in the good news that, that Jesus has overcome what's been broken in the world for since the beginning of the, the fall. Thoughts, reactions, anything that, yeah, Chris and Victor? Uh, I would just, I think there's two weaknesses. Again, what we're saying is that each of these theories are in Scripture, and there's truth to them, uh, but yet as a metaphor, they're each incomplete if you yeah. press them too far. And I think if you press this one too far, in two ways there's weaknesses exposed. The one is 
in that theory, then it really kind of discounts sin yeah. in a way, our personal uh, sense, personal responsibility, responsibility for, sin, yeah. for sin. And then secondly, um, as far as just the love piece, I think in some ways slightly diminishes God's love yeah. in that really what we become is... Um, the only way I can think to describe it is booty in a war. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, the pose- yeah. we're the trophies, we're the trophies in, in a way, yeah. uh, but yep. there's not that sense more of relationship yeah, totally. um, and, and wanting to be in this presence of God safely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it plays into it. We see those like battle, victory, freedom motifs yeah. throughout scripture. Yeah. And so it definitely plays into that. Mm-hmm. Um but I would agree. I think one of the challenges is it. I think it does give Satan a lot more power mm-hmm. too than um, maybe some of the other theories. Yeah, and the, I think one of the the places that you do see this kind of rising to prominence is when you talk about uh, systems of injustice in our world mm-hmm. or bad things that are happening. When Scripture talks about the principalities and powers being overcome, that that's our hope that those things can change. And so it, it does get at the implications of the cross for life. Now that if Jesus has conquered sin and death, then the church is the space that reflects that and sin and death uh, are conquered. But to your point, Larry, uh, what I've often heard this theory is, is the kingdom without the king. So you get this peace and justice, but if you don't understand God's love for you individually and corporately, uh, then it kind of makes God some like authoritative dictator who conquers and then um, but has no personal connection to you and and so I think it it kind of is a good jumping off point that when we talk about all these different theories of atonement what do we do with them and and how do they blend together one of the illustrations I've kind of appreciated it's by a guy named Scott McKnight but he says all of these theories are really a it's like a golf clubs in a golf bag and that each of them you pull out for different contexts different situations um you don't use your driver when you're on the putting green so you don't need to use psa when you're talking about systems and principalities or whatever right like no that's a weird metaphor but, <laughs> <laughs> We're with um, you. yeah and so um it, it, it's really important to say that all of these have a place of fleshing out and have all been used to try to help people understand what happens when Jesus uh, dies on the cross and what the implications and applications of that. Um, it also keeps us from thinking any one of these atonement theories is the gospel. The gospel actually transcends all of those things. Um, but that, um, so in our Western context, Penal substitutionary atonement theory is almost equated with the gospel, but then it misses out on Christus Victor and mm-hmm. misses out on moral exemplar. And mm-hmm. so we have to have a full picture of those to, to really see um, what is going on in the gospel. Well, and I think so often people are deconstructing PSA yeah. and then Christians respond with like, what are, like that's the gospel. What are you doing? And yes. it's like, no, you're not even, you're, they're not even deconstructing the gospel. Like that's not even the same yeah. thing. Um, in terms of golf, I only use uh, my putt putt for all the things, so that metaphor isn't I'm not super a, helpful. Hey, I'm not to a me. golfer either, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could have fooled me. I watch me. the Masters. So. <laughs> um, I think the the theory that is most helpful for me to kind of understand it is the idea of like kaleidoscope theory, mm. um, which is by Joel B. Green, and it's this idea that there's not just one theory that can capture all of the different um, nuances of the gospel, and but it calls us to understand the different ones, but also know that there's mystery in that, mm, yeah, right? Yeah. That And you can look at it from different directions and um, and see different things. Yeah, and so, absolutely. and I do feel like that that's something that we often miss in like modern day Western culture is the mystery of who God is and yeah. that we just feel like we need to know all the answers and there needs to be this black and white. And yeah. 
man, like that's all, just not what's the case. Almost making an equation of like this happens, so this happens, so God does this. Yeah. And there might be elements of that, but then you end up missing out on all the other aspects and stuff. And so, yeah, you've got to bring them them together. Um, and Larry, I know for you, like if if you're talking to someone who's decon, what we've kind of de- done today is deconstruct the different theories of atonement. Mm-hmm. But if someone is actually in a space where they're and I think Alyssa, you've you've this question is actually technically yours now. I'm stealing it. But uh, cool. if you're deconstructing <laughs> atonement itself, like, is it necessary? Did did Jesus really even need to die? Or um, some theories have have gone so far to say is that in Jesus' death, um, it's universal atonement, so it covers everything. For people that are are maybe wrestling with some of those things and not just uh, PSA, but whether or not atonement is necessary, what what would you maybe say to to some of them about our conversation today? Uh, a couple of thoughts. One is um, it, it is hard. I, I think empathy is called for mm-hmm. for sure, and, and, and especially if we're working with someone who's deconstructing and you know really asking legitimate questions. I don't think that's a place to you know get your apologetics up and ready and right. have a debate and say I'm going to prove to you that uh, PSA is is the you know dominant metaphor in the New Testament. I think rather we start with what Paul said that the cross is is offensive mm-hmm. and it's it's difficult and so let's acknowledge that and join together and then I think the second thing I would say is if a person's willing to do some study some like uh, understanding as much as we've talked about even today the Old Testament sacrificial mm-hmm. system or the idea of blood the idea of um, you know, God and what God's justice mean, exploring some of those terms. So, so for instance, you know, I think it's easier to understand a sense of justice, God's justice, when you understand it as a parent, let's mm, say, yeah. and somebody does something to you. If, if when you have a child, suddenly you have this whole new set of justice yeah. parameters <laughs> yeah. uh, and, 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 you know, placing that in a context of, well, that's some of this is wrapped up in God the Father mm-hmm. and how he's going to pursue relationship with us. Yeah. And so... I think if a person's willing to sit down and dig deep and have some of this discussion, it can be very worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think to that point too, it, um, again, we've said this, but I think it's worth reiterating that we're talking about a lot of different theories that are trying to explain an event. Yeah. And um, all of them fall short in one way or another. And so it, I think it's kind of natural for people to, to push back against some of these. Because it, it's so hard to, to your kaleidoscope point to get the whole picture of what's yeah. happening in the cross of Christ. And um, yeah, and so it's a place that we struggle and are open to question. And that doesn't mean if we question the atonement that we're questioning the gospel. That's right. Well, and I think it's so important um, that these theories are used to be compelling to the people of the yeah. time. Mm. Um, and this is maybe your thought, Paul, but you're not the <laughs> only one that can steal intellectual property. <laughs> so I would say that, um, <laughs> right, that I just think in our society now, the average person doesn't necessarily feel, feel guilt yeah, in the totally. same way yeah. that people felt 50 years ago. Right. And so if you are trying to go to someone who's not a believer and say, well, well you know, luckily... Jesus covers all your guilt, and so you don't have to feel that anymore. And they're yeah. like, cool, I guess I don't need it. Yeah. Um, and so, you don't feel guilty about anything. Exactly. And so, I do think that there's other parts of the gospel that are more, that are compelling to people right. that are kind of in this postmodern society that we need to tap into. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think when you look at our, our cultural context, one, we're, we're kind of morally relativistic. And so, 
no one really feels guilty for anything because as long as you haven't harmed anyone, then you're not guilty of anything. And so, um, so I think then putting a, a context of the gospel where, hey, you need to feel guilt and Jesus took your guilt from you actually kind of falls on deaf ears. But I think of it the other way too, you know, of, of we live in a very spiritually open, was a lot of people talk about how um, the universe is for them or they hope the universe is. This is very impersonal, very distant, um, abstract thing, entity that they hope is, is there to help them. Scripture and the atonement theories actually say something different than that too, that, that God actually knows us very intimately and deeply and personally in his force. And so when we get into these atonement theories, we need both like the Christus Victor, that, that Jesus conquers all that's wrong with our world. And so when we're hopeless about injustice, Christ can overcome that. When we also feel uh, like the world is against us and that the universe is against us because we've had a bad week, Scripture says in, in PSA that, or in other atonement theories, that God is forced, that he went so far to rescue and redeem. And, and so we've got to hold all of those together. Um, and, and I love that the gospel actually gives us the freedom to metaphorize. I don't know if that's what we're <laughs> But bring metaphor we'll to atonement so that we can explain it because yeah. it's, it's trying to explain this radical thing that we don't have words for. I, I love this quote by C.S. Lewis uh, along this line. He said, theories about Christ's death, theories are not Christianity. Mm. They're explanations of how it works. Yeah. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death washed out our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That's the formula. That's Christianity. That's what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ did all this, in my view, Lewis says, are quite secondary. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No. Yeah, which should... Hopefully, if you're in a place of deconstructing some of this and working through maybe some of the ways the, the gospel was presented to you in these theories, mm-hmm. can maybe free you up to to hopefully realize that the, maybe the way the gospel was presented to you in a certain mm-hmm. atonement theory is not actually the gospel and the good news, and, and it transcends um, some of those theories. It might be a part, yeah. uh, but it doesn't have to be the whole. And so um, if some of those things that, that have been told to you have just not set well with you and caused you to question God's character, uh, maybe some of these other theories could help flesh out a little bit more about who God is and what he's done. Well, and I've heard it explained um, like a tree, that mm-hmm. like the tree is the gospel and that each branch is kind of these, um, is a different theory of atonement and what yeah. has happened. Um, and again, they're all a part of the, the tree, but if one of them is cut off, like that does not kill the tree. Um, and so it's important to kind of actually know know the tree and know what is true, yeah. and um, but also know that there's other options and other ways of looking at it um, that could be more helpful for yeah, different people. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's actually a really helpful full place to, to maybe close. And if people are interested in maybe learning more, reading more, doing a deep dive, a couple of um, books or resources that I think could be helpful. One is uh, a book by Fleming Rutledge. Uh, she is a, a pastor, and it, it's just an incredible masterwork on the various atonement theories and what happens in the crucifixion. Uh, and then that's the name of the book, The Crucifixion. Um, another one uh, called a a Community Called Atonement by Scott McKnight. It's actually a book on deconstructing the atonement theories and kind of trying to reconstruct them at the end, but it, it's very helpful uh, in talking through some of this. And another one I recommend is uh, The Passion and the Cross by Ronald uh, Rollheiser. He's actually a Catholic priest who writes on um, the cross and atonement and just kind of 
sometimes it's helpful to get outside of our evangelical lens and see how the rest of the church um, has has held on to some of this. And so that one's been very helpful for me. Any other resources you guys might add? Nope. <laughs> Larry? <laughs> well, one for me, uh, kind of a classic, uh, uh, was by John Stott mm-hmm. called The Co- Cross of Christ. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it was written probably 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but very, one of the great reflections. And what I like about it, too, is the second half of that book, the first half of is on atonement theories. The second half gets to that idea of how atonement theories shape our faith. Yeah, And uh, so I, I think Stott does a great job of yeah. applying it. Yeah, no, I think that's that's awesome, and I think our our hope in doing this is, is we really do believe the gospel we preach and the the metaphors we use shape the kind of churches we create and the kind of disciples uh, that we make, and so our hope in in kind of deconstructing some of these theories is is really to hopefully empower people to to learn more about what's happening in the cross and what it means that God is reconciling all things to Himself and how that comes about, um, but also I think then to to really begin to think through some of the implications because I think a lot of us have a very um, we can kind of live through these atonement theories and and not reflect on what they lead to or what uh, implications they have and so uh, just thinking through you know how all these different theories might actually lead to to living life differently than we we have before thanks for for doing a deep dive on this uh, theological stuff Uh, hopefully people enjoying this is helpful so too thanks Paul thanks Alyssa Thanks for listening to the Monday Morning Phone Call podcast. We hope that this show will spark conversation and that you'll share this episode with a friend. You can join us on Instagram at WaterstoneCC and Facebook at Waterstone Church to continue the conversation and share your thoughts and opinions with us. This podcast is hosted by me, Paul Joslin, and Alyssa Frisbee. We'll be back next Monday with our next episode.